Uh, we normally stand when we read God's Word. However, um, the length of the chapter sort of uh, mitigates against that, I believe. So, um, hear God's Word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the, days, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion, to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter in law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, we need your work in our hearts and our minds now. We 
uh, are dependent on uh, you softening our hearts, unstopping our ears, uh, enlightening our minds that we might hear and know and understand your word and that it might change us, that you might use it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ, our Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. You know, um, as I read through the book of Ruth, I, I, I can't help but think of the movie uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Um, the two actually are exactly alike. Uh, either of the Miracle on 34th Streets will do. Either one of them will suffice. Uh, but it's just like the book of Ruth. They follow the exact same pattern. They both spend half to two-thirds of the time, three-fourths of the time in the book of Ruth, sort of introducing who all the people are, all the connections, all the relationships, and creating tension and leading you to a place where you're kind of on the edge of your seat wondering, how is this going to be resolved? And in both cases, the resolution happens in a courtroom. And then after the courtroom scene is, well, it's really just information about Children and descendants and, and genealogy stuff. I'm, I'm pretty well convinced that the person who wrote uh, or, or directed or produced Miracle on 34th Street was incredibly familiar with the book of Ruth. And it's this scene here in, in Ruth chapter 4 that we finally get to that courtroom scene that it's, a, it's an ancient Israel courtroom. It doesn't look like our courtroom. It looks very different. But it's still, in essence, a courtroom scene where finally all the tension that has been built for the first three chapters, we finally get the resolution. We finally see how all of this is going to play out in the life of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. We finally get the answer. What will come of Ruth? Before we look at the courtroom, though, we need to look at the case uh, before us. Because at stake here is actually an application of the law of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, verses 5 and 6, we have uh, the introduction of the Leveret marriage law. The word Leveret has nothing to do with Levi or Levite. It's actually Latin for brother-in-law, so you don't need to know that. Um, but uh, the point is, if a, a man marries a woman and then he dies before they are able to have children, it's his brother's responsibility actually to take his wife and raise up a son for his brother, his deceased brother. The, the first son of this second marriage would actually provide for the deceased brother an inheritance, descendants, people who would, would own his land and Sir, carry on his name. We've pointed out before, though, that that's not exactly what we have here. In fact, we don't know at this point, I mean, until verse 10 of Ruth 4, we don't know who Ruth's husband was. It's not until verse 10 of chapter 4 that we find out she had been married to Malon. We didn't know until now. But we do know that Boaz is not Naomi and Elimelech's third son. He's not the brother of Malon and Kilion. He's, he doesn't owe this responsibility to Ruth or to Naomi. This, it, that law doesn't 
precisely apply in this context. In Leviticus 25, we have instructions on what happens if land is sold because of poverty or out of need or for various reasons and and who can buy it and what happens to the land and in the year of jubilee the land goes back to the original owner anyway and and you're dealing with land in Leviticus 25 laws about about how land belongs to families that may actually be at work here an underlying thought behind some of what's going on between Boaz and this other close redeemer. Do I need to remind you of... Uh, some of you are new. I will. Some of you haven't been here since we preached through the book of Genesis. Uh, land and descendants are big deals in Israel. They were pretty important aspects to God's covenant promises to Abraham. You can go back to Genesis 15 and 17 and God promises Abraham a place and a people and his presence. And, and these laws, Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, have, have to do with maintaining people and place for God's people. Descendants and land for God's people. Ruth is without a husband. She's without a son. She has no prospect of blessing. Quite honestly, this that would be, I'll call it a condition. Please don't hear me. That, that's, that's such a terrible word. But that situation, finding yourself in that situation in your life in those days meant surely you were, you were headed to poverty. You were, you were going to be destitute. There was no husband. There was no son. There was no one to provide for you, to care for you. Naomi's without a husband, without a son. Ruth, her daughter-in-law, without a husband, without a son. And their land is, for whatever reason, it's up for grabs. And that's the matter that Boaz puts before this close relative. That's the case that Boaz lays out before this relative. It doesn't look like a courtroom scene. But the reality is, it, it is. Ruth actually is not required to marry Boaz. We found, we found that in uh, a couple of weeks ago in Ruth chapter 3. In fact, it sounds like Boaz is not required to marry Ruth as the way he ends chapter 3. If this other Redeemer will redeem you, great. If not, I will. But it sounds as though I don't have to. The law is not requiring him to. In fact, he sort of points out her worth in connection with, you didn't run after all these other younger men who, you know, for whatever reason, but you're staying within the family and, and are loving and serving your mother-in-law in that way. It sounds like the law itself is not mandating. It's not requiring that Boaz, or that, for that matter, this other close relative, marry Ruth. He clearly has a choice. Because here in verse 6, he's given the option, will you redeem her? He says, yes, I will. Until he finds out, well, the land. Yes, I'll redeem the land. And then he finds out there's people involved. And, and we'll get to that in a minute. 
Do you remember the the YouTube song uh, one? There's a line in that song that says, "Love is a temple. Love the higher law." Isn't that the way Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments? When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? It was intended to be a trap. I'm going to catch him because there's ten and they all go together and you can't separate them and he's going to, I'm going to make him pick one. What's the greatest commandment? And so Jesus responds with, well, he quotes the Old Testament. He responds with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. He summarizes the Ten Commandments. He summarizes the the law of God under two headings. Love for God and love for others. The case before us is a case that actually seeks to apply God's law into everyday life for the good of others, even if it's costly to us. That's the case in Ruth chapter 4. Notice what happens in the courtroom. Boaz goes to the, uh, the city gate. That would have been the, the courtroom of the day. It was where the elders and the, the leaders of the city would stay and they would uh, make decisions and it's where legal um, uh, uh, interactions would take place, legal uh, battles of sorts uh, would be decided and, and understood there in that context. And Boaz, while he's sitting there at the gate, the, the close redeemer just happens to walk by. I'm, I'm fascinated in some ways by the way uh, the writer of Ruth uses the word behold right there at the beginning of the sentence. Behold the relative uh, walks by. And behold the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came. It almost makes you, as you're reading through the book of Ruth, it almost makes you want to kind of glance glance up. And behold, wait, where? That's the aim of, of that word. It's intended to make you look around. And so this Redeemer happens by and, and Boaz says, hey buddy, hey pal, hey friend, it's friend in, in your ESV. It's... Um, it's a little more um, unclear than that. Uh, it's, it's, it's the way you and I do. You know, you're walking down the hall and you're about to pass somebody you hadn't seen in a little bit, but you, you know them and you know them well and, and you have that moment where I can't pull up his name fast enough. By the time I'm, you're, you're doing... You're doing all kinds of physics in your head at his speed and my speed. By the time we get past each other, I'm not going to know the answer to the question, what's his name? But that's okay. We've got ways. Hey, man, what's going on? Hey, buddy. Hey, pal. We've got all sorts of words like that that we can use. The Hebrew word here is poloni almoni. It's it's. Sort of this unknown, you're going to be using this now, I know, but I, I am too. We don't know what to call him. So we're going to call him Mr. Almoni through the rest of the text. That's, that's what the writer gives us. 
And so he turns aside and sits down, and, and you can imagine at that point, he's wondering, why, why, why am I, what? Hey, hey, Boaz, what's going on? Hadn't seen you in a couple, a couple weeks. You know, how's business going? He doesn't know why he's there until Boaz says, hey, you ten elders, come sit over here too. And now, ah, wait a minute, we've got a quorum, we can do business, and a decision's about to happen. And so this close redeemer, Mr. Almoni, at this point is thinking, wait, what's going on? What am I getting caught up in? What's about to happen? And we don't always... And this, this in some ways, I will admit it to you because... Surely, I'm confident I'm not alone in this. There are times when you read through Scripture and you get actually annoyed. Not annoyed that it's pointing out your sin, but annoyed that you have questions and it's not giving you the answers you want. There's a part of me that thinks, now wait a minute, hold on, what's this guy's name? If he's a closer relative than Boaz, doesn't he already know all of this? Like, why does he not know that the land is for sale or that that Ruth is involved? He seems not to know those details, and that doesn't make any sense to me. But the Bible doesn't give us those answers. We don't get the always get the answers that we want. We could assume and we can we can certainly you know run off and make those assumptions, but the reality is we have to admit they're just assumptions. They're, that's not Bible, that's just me thinking. Because the text doesn't actually give us the answers we always want. Boaz, um, at first blush, seems a little uh, misleading. Um, I, I think it's shrewd business. Um, he, he lays out before this uh, Mr. Almoni, uh, hey, there's land uh, that used to belong to Elimelech, Naomi, she's back, and that land is up for grabs. It's up for, for purchase, for redemption. You're the close relative. You're the one that has first uh, right of refusal on this land, and so uh, it's yours if you want it. And you notice um, he, he answers that he wants it. Boaz wants Ruth. And is going to get the land. This close redeemer wanted the land. And was going to be stuck with Ruth. I find that a fascinating difference between these two men. Boaz wanted Ruth. Was willing to take the land because it was all a package deal. But he's wise enough. I'm going to only lay the land out before Mr. Almoni. And see what he says. The reality is, Poloni Almoni is actually on trial here. It's a test of his love for God and God's law. He's willing to take the land. He's, he's, he's willing um, to, to spend some money now in order to get land that will help him make more money down the road. And then in verse 8, verse 6, then in verse 6 we get, oh wait, there's there's more people involved. There's Ruth involved. There's potential descendants involved. Descendants that won't belong to me, but that will belong to Malon. I can't. We do this, don't we? 
It's so much easier. For that matter, it's so much more acceptable to say, I can't, when we really mean, I won't. I'm not willing. Spend money for this land and it'll make me money and it'll, it'll recover the money I spent and then make me some. That I will do. But Ruth, I mean, that means I've got to feed her. It means her at least firstborn son isn't going to be mine. And he, you can hear him. He's quickly counting the cost in his head. He can't. Lest I impair my own inheritance. I'm not willing to, to cause future generations trouble with this inheritance you take her. Think of the times we say that I can't. And we really mean that we won't. Mr. Poloni Almoni has this opportunity before him to exercise his right as a close relative to redeem the land and to redeem Ruth and to provide a seed from Malon. And he counts money instead. And he says, I'm not willing to part with my money. You know, the reality is the role of the kinsman redeemer. It exists for the good of others and not for the redeemer himself. You ever thought about this? You read through scripture and you realize the whole point, the whole role of kinsman redeemer is not for his own good, but for the good of someone else, someone in need, someone who without his work has no hope. Someone who's hopeless and helpless in this world unless he steps in and does something for her. The whole point of a kinsman redeemer is for the good of others. It'll cost him money. It'll cost him offspring. It'll cost him time. And Mr. Poloni Almoni says no. So he took off his sandal and handed it to Boaz. I mean, because that's what you do, right? You're buying a house. You're sitting there in the lawyer's office with a thousand pages to sign. It would be so much easier if I could just take off my shoe and hand it to you. You don't want it. But it would be so much easier if I could just give you my sandal in front of these ten witnesses and the men who had sort of gathered there at the city gate. It's, uh, I guess, ancient Israel notary public. Here, here's my sandal. It's a practice that, uh, this also fascinating to me, the, the book of Ruth, probably written during David's reign, probably during David's life. And, and they have lost this art of take my shoe, notary public. The writer of Ruth explains the practice, not just to us, but to the original audience. The people in David's day didn't know about this. That was a lost practice. They were doing something. They, I don't know, they were signing papers, I guess. I don't know whatever they were doing in David's day. And so the shoe passed. And it's, it's, it's sort of Mr. Almoni sitting there before Regis saying, No, here's my shoe. That's my final answer. And his decision is made. 
Poloni Almoni, the rich young ruler, for that matter, Orpah. There are people in Scripture who, when faced with counting the cost of following Christ, decided it was too expensive. Orpah is the only name we know. Poloni Almoni, we get to call him because that sounds kind of fun to us, but that's not his name. The rich young ruler, we don't know his name. We don't know the effects. And for that matter, every single one of them, gone from Scripture. They show up. They count the cost. They decide, I can't spend that much. That's more than I'm willing to pay. And they leave. And they fade away for good. Each of these three, Orpah, Mr. Almoni, the rich young ruler, they all decided that following God's word would cost them more than they were willing to spend. Have you ever done that? You find yourself sort of counting the cost and saying, that's, that cost, that's going to cost me too much. That's going to cost me a friendship. That could cost me this job. That could lead to um, family dynamics being messed up for good. This could cause me any number of things. And I'm not willing to lose that in exchange for Christ. What what does Christ say? What does it profit someone if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? It's the case. It's the courtroom. And then finally we see the consequences of uh, this courtroom scene. If only judge and jury would pray for you as you walked out of the courtroom. But in verse 11 and 12, that's exactly what happens. The, the witnesses there, the elders of the city, the men that had, had gathered around to watch and to witness this interaction, they actually pray for Boaz and for Ruth and for his descendants. They prayed for God's blessing on the household of Boaz and Ruth, uh, that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah, the two wives of Jacob, from whom come the twelve tribes of Israel. The entire nation of Israel exists because of these two women, Rachel and Leah. They prayed that their house would be like the house of Perez. And if you remember our series in Genesis, that's a head-scratcher. Perez is actually the product of leveret marriage laws gone wrong. You can go back to Genesis 38 and read the account. Judah failed. I'll give you my son. And, 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 and he cheated and lied and was killed for it. And then the third son didn't grow up. And so Judah didn't give it. And Tamar tricked Judah. And, and they have a son, Perez. So Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, have a son together whose name is Perez. From whom comes Boaz. Boaz understands the implications of these laws on God's people. Leveret marriage law gone wrong produces Boaz. Boaz says, I'm not going to let that happen to the next generation. We're going to follow the laws of God, even if not to the letter, to the law of love, not to the letter of the law itself. 
Does the Leverett marriage law apply? Technically, no. Does it, do, it, do it sort of implications apply? Yes. For the good of others, I will love others enough to take this responsibility on myself. And wouldn't you know their prayers are answered? The nation of Israel exists because of Judah, because of Rachel and Leah. In reality, the true Israel exists because of Ruth. She's going to be Jesus' ancestor. We have a picture of God accomplishing His purposes even through what appear to be our darkest days. Naomi had been without. Naomi was convinced. I left full. I've come home empty. Doom, despair, and agony on me. Woe is me. Her life is over. And in her darkest, God accomplishes His purposes nonetheless. And don't miss that God's blessing on His people in this passage actually come through His people. How often are we looking for God's blessing to bypass our brothers and sisters around us? We want it just to land in our lap straight out of the sky from His hand into my house as though nobody else is involved. That's not how it works here. In the book of Ruth, God's blessing on Naomi comes through Ruth. God's blessing on Ruth comes through Boaz. You and I would do well to learn to see God's blessing coming through and from one another, not looking for it despite one another. Let me make just a couple of applications from this passage. Um, First is this. You know that one of the worst things you can be called in today's Christian circles is a legalist. In fact, we use, you know what a legalist is, right? It's someone who loves God's law more than I do. If, if, if I call you a legalist, odds are pretty good. It's just because I think you care more about God's law than I do. We throw the word or we use it as a dart. I can, I can take this person down. If I just call them a legalist, I get to dismiss them out of hand. It's, it's our notion. It's our world that says we live in the New Testament era. We live in the, 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 the era of grace. See, law, that's Old Testament. New Testament, that's grace. That's where you and I live. And so the law, I mean, it was fine then, but we, we can kind of dismiss that from time to time. Boaz's view of the law of God is actually the exact opposite. He doesn't look at it like a cancer to be avoided at all costs, but a privilege to step into this law as a means of loving someone who apart from this law and apart from me has no hope, no expectation for help in this world. Rather than fearing God's law and doing everything we can to get out from underneath it, we actually should look for ways to biblically and faithfully apply His commands and His principles 
into our lives. A second uh, application from this passage. Um, you, you know you can't have the last line of a story if you don't have a first line of the story. I know that sounds, I know that's deep. I know that's shocking to many of you that you know, read things. But you can't have a last line if there is no first line. You know that's actually true of, of God orchestrating His divine plan. Without a first step, you can't have a last step. Without line one of Ruth, Naomi and Elimelech leaving Israel to go to Moab. You don't get the last line of Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Yes, again, we've, we've sort of made this point before. Um, the writer of Ruth never actually tells us that Naomi and Elimelech were wrong for leaving the promised land to go to Moab, a foreign land, during a famine in their home. The writer never actually gives us that. And I've mentioned before, I've read commentaries in Ruth that take the exact opposite opinion. I'm of the opinion that it was wrong for them to leave the place that God had promised His presence to go seek help from foreigners. And if nothing else, it certainly was clearly wrong to marry foreigners. The last line of Ruth doesn't negate the wrongness of the first. We don't get to use, well, but something good came out of my sin, so it's okay. It doesn't work that way. If, if, if we sin and God redeems Redeems it, great. But that doesn't give us license to sin. We can't use a, a good consequence as license to ignore God's commands. A third application. Have you ever accused God of being stingy? Okay, maybe you haven't used those words precisely. But we've all been through those moments when we think, really think God's withholding something from me. I, I really think there's something out there I need or want or that He could give me and He's not doing it. You know, that was the accusation of the serpent in the garden. Of course God doesn't want you to eat that fruit. He knows it'll make you like Him and He doesn't want that for you. God is a stingy God. The serpent told Adam and Eve. Notice Naomi goes through pain and suffering. Yes, life gets difficult. Yes, we walk through dark, difficult times in, and feel empty from time to time. But we would do well to learn that God's plan isn't about us. Her suffering 
would only feel partially redeemed when Boaz married Ruth. And as Naomi bounced baby Obed on her knee, you know, the reality is it wouldn't be for another couple of generations before the greater blessing of God's orchestrating work, even through her dark and difficult times, would become clear as David sits on the throne. And the book of Ruth says, David is the legitimate king because, look, I've accomplished this. I've put him in that place. And it wouldn't be for another dozen generations or more before Christ would come through that same line. The reality is we need to take, learn to take the longer view of God's plan in our lives, not the short. Fourth and finally, aren't you thankful for a kinsman redeemer who counted the cost and didn't take off his shoe and hand it to someone else? who counted the cost and saw the cross and saw the cup of God's ju- uh, judgment and wrath that he was going to have to drink and for the joy set before him endured the cross. For a kinsman redeemer who eagerly showed loving kindness to his people for his own, uh, through his own obedience in life, his suffering and death to redeem us from Sin. Jesus didn't look around, count the cost, realize that serving as our kinsman redeemer was actually going to cause him to bleed and suffer and die. And as we said just several weeks ago, preaching through the Apostles' Creed, descending into hell, enduring the wrath and curse and judgment of God in our place, and say, That's more than I'm willing to pay. Here, take my shoe. Jesus grabbed a cup and He drank so that you and I might be delivered. Is that your hope? Is that your comfort? Not just in this life, but in the life to come. Run to Christ. Run to the cross. He's your kinsman redeemer. He's the one who redeems you in His loving kindness for us. Helpless, hopeless, dark despair as we are to make us one with Him. And give us eternal life. Believer, be encouraged. If Christ is for you, who can stand against you? If Christ has redeemed you and holds you in His hand, who can take you out of it? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your faithfulness to endure the cross. In our place, uh, we deserve the wrath and curse of God. We Darkness, empty despair, uh, in uh, helpless and, and hopeless in and of ourselves. You became our greater Boaz. You became the one who counted the cost and redeemed us from the pit and paid the price necessary to be our kinsman redeemer, to show us your loving kindness. Would you grow in us greater gratitude? Would you grow in us deeper faith to trust in Your power. If You will save us, You will deliver us on the last day. Father, will You use us for the good and growth and advancement of Your kingdom to show that loving kindness to others. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.